Hey, Aaron Johnson here, and welcome to Holistic Resistance Radio. This is a place for me to really examine, unpack, appreciate the many individuals I've been honored to work with over the last five years specifically, but really over the last lifetime. I'm really curious about how we resist holistically. How do we resist with all of ourselves? When we think about the parts of resistance that is most effective, it's always uh, something to understand and, and to really respect is that this is a, our whole selves. This is a part of our story that's not just um, uh, marching on the street, which is an amazing process, but it's really about our day in and day out, building resistance as we breathe. And that's what this podcast is about. We're going to seek out stories, interviews, and share personal experiences here at HolisticResistance.com and really take the time to understand the power of you, the power of the individual, the one-on-one combat of ending racism, one child at a time, one husband at a time, one wife at a time, one teacher at a time, one student at a time. And as this expands itself, we realize that holistic resistance is about taking our lives and living and breathing resistance. Thank you. I'm excited about this season. It's going to be amazing. I look forward to getting to know you in a deep way. Welcome to Holistic Resistance. My name is Aaron Johnson. I'm here with Portia Bede. Hello, everyone. Welcome to Holistic Resistance. It's been a minute since we've had a podcast, and that's totally a part of this, our lives being very real, but we're going to have a pretty consistent thump of uh, podcasts for a lot of reasons, partly because we have a lot of backed up information we want to share. But the other piece is we're headed into a three-week tour, which is actually one of the most probably in depth and longest tours we've gone on thus far uh, in in a row. Um, we've done months, but we've been home for, for stints. We're going to spend most of our time in the Northwest in this tour. And there's a lot of pieces to this tour that I feel like are still evolving. So we might add some dates in the Bay Area and add some pieces in other parts of the country as uh, organizers get back to us with who is able to host us this year. So Portia... Um, this is ending in 2018 and going into 2019. This tour will be in 2019. Um, but we've been done a ton of work this year. And so I really want to curious after coming off of several tours that we've talked about and going into this tour, uh, I really want you to think about and tell me what feels different for you. What's on top as you think about being, you know, three weeks in the Northwest on tour, working with a variety of people, staying away strangers homes, I shouldn't say strangers' homes. We're going to be staying with some people we know pretty well now, but people that is not home for us. Mm-hmm. Um, what's on top and what feels hard for you and what feels good and excitement about this tour? Yeah. Um, for me, several things come up about going into this tour, and one of the first things that come up for me is uh, dealing with a mother who is very, very sick and trying to figure out how to manage and like dealing with her sickness. And knowing that when I leave, that's extra weight on my two younger sisters to try to figure out how to manage my mother who uh, whose sickness is progressing. And now she's at a point in which her body is physically deteriorating just a couple of days ago, uh, breaking her arm and mm-hmm. not being able to maneuver her in ways that we did before and being able to get the support from her, being able to maneuver her own body weight to try to help support and 
helping with her, her daily needs, um, from bodily fluid to just needing food. Um, so that's something that's coming up for me right now and constantly thinking about how my abs absence is going to impact the, the challenges and the difficulties of being able to help her continue to move forward as uh, she is also scheduled for surgery because she broke her arm. Mm -hmm. And so her being scheduled for surgery in the next couple of days, not knowing how that's going to, how that's going to be impacting her two to three weeks later when I'm getting ready to leave to go on my tour. So there's a lot of, um, there's a, my heart is heavy. My heart is heavy on that and thinking about that. And I'm also very much so excited to go on this tour because I'm, I'm just really starting to see the magnitude of what holistic resistance is doing in the world and how it's already starting to impact individuals' lives and, and building community in a lot of ways. And that to me is powerful because we are a part, we are a part of the solution and not a part of the problem. And that feels really good to me. I, I look forward to connecting with uh, different individuals in the different locations we're going. Um, right now, Seattle is one of those things, one of those locations that's coming up. And knowing just great people out there, Dylan, Anna Brown, and being able to take some time to connect with them and just the the hearts, you know, feeling the 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 hearts in in this work and the warmth of choosing to open up their homes to us choosing to um be flexible in their schedule to be able to support holistic resistance that feels really really good to me and i think the last thing for me is that this is our third tour just recognizing that yeah, it hasn't been a full year like it'll it's about to be a year you know that we've been doing this and we're already going on our third tour and continuing to do work that's gonna keep this work propelling forward and that feels good it's huge. One of the pieces that I think is important is that it's not like there's not support for your mother when you're gone, but it's also about like finding black hands that are mindful and have attention yeah. to be sensitive to the complexity of a black woman that's fighting for life. Um, and the the places where I think this becomes challenging is like why why should one leave on tour in the middle of this and we would have canceled probably every tour if we would have waited you know until your mom um either was healed or passed away or wherever she was and we realized that we have to continue to build this work even yeah. if there's carnage because it seems to be always carnage if it's not your mother there's something else that we could arguably consider counseling our work for um and so we have to kind of be strategic about when it's become urgent um, one of the things I'm curious about, too, is you're doing a lot of writing and creative work that will inevitably not only be in a, in a part of this tour, but it will impact the content we cover. What feels on top for you is, like, if you want to give us a kind of a bird's eye view of uh, your writing and, and how, how it sort of may potentially show up in this tour. Yeah, um... So a couple of months ago, when my family was in a situation of losing their home, I I started to feel very much so just like overwhelmed with everything. And 
what I tend, one of my healthy outlets that I tend to lean towards is poetry. And I remember taking time after going to my mother's house right before she uh, lost it. I remember going there and seeing the stress on their faces and seeing the, the, the carnage, the carnage that is in my house that, that breathes every day. And I just said, you know, I need, I need to leave. I need to go somewhere. I need to figure out a way how to process this because it's painful and it's, it's, it's hurts. And I remember just, I, I didn't want to go to Starbucks. I didn't want to go somewhere in public and I didn't feel like I, there was a place that I could go and just write. And so I, I ended up sitting in the car and I just took out my notebook and I started writing. And that's where my series of mama poems were birthed. And my mama poems, I feel, is a intuitive, spiritual, healing process on paper. And being able to take time to be able to write about ways that I see black mothering not being shown in media, not being shown... Um, in, in other lights other than the stereotypes of a black woman and black mother, and if black mothers are even ever acknowledged, I started to realize that this is very precious. And it's something that I want to share in this work of holistic resistance because I think that that's a part of holistic resistance is recognizing that, that black women and black mothers play a significant role in resisting and, and, and holding oppression for themselves and their families 24-7. And that in the process of this, that there are, there is a version of black mothering that is not shown. And I feel that it is urgent and crucial that it is shown. And I portray that in my poems. And so I plan on sharing my mama poem. Uh, it's a series. And right now, number one is the one that I plan on sharing on the tour and it could be more, but I really look forward to just being able to share that and helping others think about why these are, and why after listening to the poem, is this a version of mothering and black mothering that you don't often get to see or hear about? Mm. Letting things be seen that have not been seen. Thank you so much. Yeah. Um, for sharing that. Yeah, and I'm curious. I'm curious for you, Aaron, and going on our third tour, and you are very much so a part of this support team dealing with my mother. You are such a played such a huge impact in that. Of uh, what is it that that is driving you going towards this tour? Because we have a lot, you know. Outside of my mother, you still have your own challenges and your day to day that you're dealing with as well that has your own version of your carnage yet and still you're just showing up for this work nonstop. and i'm curious for you like what what is the driving force for that and when it seems like your tank is almost on empty what fills it back up yeah i think the driving force is that this work is effective it has to be done um in person in a lot of ways things can be done virtually but the there has to be a portion at some point that is done in person. And I also recognize that a lot of the carnage I'm navigating can be negated. It can be erased. It can be slowed down. It can be lessened if we're able to educate white people around the value of 
reaching mindfully for black bodies and, and black culture and black experiences and really like leaning into that. And I think that's where I build a community. I mean, this is about building community. It's about bringing questions and connection and thinking to the table that transfers into us being able to track each other, to see each other, mm. to hold uh, the stories of each other deeply in a way that it's, 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 it's harder to do in text. It's mm-hmm. harder to do in video. Mm-hmm. And much I appreciate both of those platforms. Um, it's essential that we take the carnage and now the carnage stagnate our bodies into this place that we, we continue to um, move across the earth, move across the world, um, and disrupt racism mm-hmm. in the middle of the fight. Mm-hmm. And I feel like that's a, that's a big part of what motivates me is that mm-hmm. when I look back at my history and if I would have stayed and let, let the carnage dictate my pain, um, or dictate my work, um, I would be stagnant. And so I refuse to let carnage be a definite defining factor in my in my tour, in my work, in my vision. And I really, really lean into letting it be my one of my teachers, mm. but a teacher that allows me to move, allows me to travel. Um, at least that's my heart. I always will uh, leave the the door open to counsel a tour if it gets down to a point that things are too urgent. Right. Um, but when I can keep moving, I keep my feet moving. Right. So the essential part of, of surviving, I think, white supremacy is keep your feet moving mm. in the right direction. Mm. Yeah. And, and I'm also, um, you know, first of all, I, I totally appreciate you saying that, like, it's it, it can be a teacher, but a teacher that helps you move forward. And I, th- I just think that's such a powerful point to be able to acknowledge and to realize, because I think sometimes it's like, it's easy to say that that's more of the thing that's stopping you than them pulling you forward you know mm-hmm. and f- so for you to kind of take it and flip it on its head and say this thing that's supposed to stop me is gonna fuel me is holistic resistance it's right? Holistic resistance. <laughs> right um and anyone who knows you uh knows that you are a questionnaire knows that you love questions and you use questions and we specifically use questions in holistic resistance as a way of thinking and reaching uh, and dismantling white supremacy and oppression. So this is tour number three. And I think that a lot of people who have already been in some of our workshops, been in some of our deep dives, hear your questions and it really, it really hits home for them. They start thinking and asking themselves in what ways can they holistically resist? So what are some questions or directions of topics around or topics that you've written questions around that may be discussed in this coming up tour? I think if I had to give a title to this tour, um, because a lot of people have done the work before, and this is like the next step in our work, um, the topic I'm going to be unpacking, I think, right now, or one of the major topics, is how white supremacy has perpetuated, celebrated, uh, organized, and built institutions around uh, the chronically undertouched black body. Mm. And I think this is something that's not been discussed enough. It's not been um, <laughs> studied enough. It's not been named enough. Mm-hmm. And I feel like I reflect back into where uh, this is a much bigger topic than maybe even this podcast right now. There's going to be a series put together on this. But there's 
there's a place where this tour allows us to work on because it's interesting because the last you know historically my regret and always will probably have this is we ask questions and we and we have invite people to answer them and then help slow down white privilege which is a, a, a task this tour we're going to introduce silent counseling, right? So it's not even about even saying anything. It's about taking the time to listen to black stories when there are no words. And that piece feels really important because when I think about chronically being undertouched and what that, how that manifests, and I just want to define that for people that might be confused about the word that we created or a phrase that we created. Um, chronically undertouched, when we coined that word, what it comes down to is that there are a big portion of our population, and particularly people of the global majority, people of color, if that word is confusing there, um, that have gone 10 years without being held mm. continuously yep. for three minutes, yep. mindfully. They've been touched. They've been beaten. They've been arrested. They've been all kinds of touches happening, <laughs> but not mindful touch where someone is holding them yeah. with compassion and mindfulness for more than two minutes. Yeah. If that has not happened in the last 12 months, technically, in the last month, technically, um, you are crying in a touch. But we just realize that most young black men that we work with and black women can say, wow, I have not cuddled or been held mindfully and held well with my heart and mind being tracked and thought about for more than five minutes in the last 10 years. Mm. That is chronically under touch and specifically perpetuated and supported by white supremacy because you think about myself when I was in middle school growing up and 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 and, and I was five of, of 500 kids in that middle school and I had bad sex education I was chronically undertouched and I was like my hormones were just now developing that is a nightmare waiting to happen right and not even the fact that I was a singer and an athlete in public I was just waiting to make some major errors. And thank goodness I had a... This is gratitude and also so oppressive is I had a very oppressive and very tight family life around Christianity that didn't allow sexuality, didn't allow any kind of sexual expression or girlfriends, any of that. And, and in, a, in a way, as oppressive as that was, that oppressive force kept me mm-hmm. in a lot of ways, in my opinion, in my opinion, mm-hmm. from doing major violations. This tour is really about addressing a new tool set and that is silent counseling mm-hmm. and a new process of thinking about how white supremacists can show up yeah. and that is introducing the idea in a very formal and clear way of being disrupting and fighting chronically undertouched bodies. If you're a nurse, yoga teacher, parent, if you're going to touch bodies, but specifically bodies of color, mm-hmm. I, I don't know how many times I talk to yoga teachers, like I want to be more black people in the studio, I want to, all this stuff. And, and, and I was like, well, what is important to understand the history? Right of black bodies being touched and how in America, how chronic it is, the chronic undertouched bodies walking into white spaces, there's an emotional calorie burn there that I don't think white people have quite even begun to absorb or to track or to think about. And that's a major theme of this tour is to help highlight, name, bring into light, bring into discussion the chronically undertouched body. And as, as a black woman... And, and being someone who is very much clear in what you are saying, I'm, I'm like, yeah, yeah, yeah. But for those white individuals who still have questions, 
of how white supremacy, they might say, Aaron, what are you talking about? How you, how you, how are you going to put black people being untouched, but on, on white supremacy? Like, I don't, I don't understand how you put that on the whole white race and the supremacy around that. How do you break that down? How do you link the idea of white supremacy to the chronically undertouched black bodies? Well, one of the things that's important is if we look at how our culture has a very clear list. If you're too fat, you cannot get touched. If you're too uh, dark, mm-hmm. you don't deserve touch. If you, you're, you're violent, right? Mm-hmm. So when you say a black person is violent or scary able. Mm-hmm. or differently able, the list mm-hmm. goes on about you can't have, can't have to If you fit in a nice little like 18 to 20 eight white women, blonde skinny. hair, skinny, mm-hmm. you deserve touch. Mm-hmm. Everyone outside of that, the kind of Viola Davis and Halle Berry kind of pendulum of like how Hollywood manifests what sexy is and what sexy is not. And we look at those characters, they've acted in a variety of movies, but we look at like Halle Berry as sexiest woman in the world. Viola Davis is not going to be talked about, framed the same way, and it's not because of her acting skill, Right. And I say that because this is a, a clear area where you'll see how quickly white-controlled America has made a, a, a breeding ground of, like, emotional bacteria to infest our hearts and minds to say, you're violent. That's the words they use. You are violent. We're going to shoot you on the street. We're going to incarcerate you by the masses. I'll translate. You're not human. I'll translate. You don't deserve human connection. You don't deserve complexity. You don't deserve to be touched. These messages are being told to us a thousand different ways, but that's the end result. If somebody's looked at as a predator, that's not a cuddly bear. Right. He doesn't deserve to be mindfully held. Right. So this message of this messaging comes from black women all the time. You look at oftentimes I look at like hip hop videos and you look at the how we know that a big portion, something like eighty to ninety percent of the young black men that have survived into their teens are suffering on, on, on a variety of levels of being chronically undertouched. And you watch a hip-hop video, and you have a guy throwing his rap, and he's bling-blinging it. What is often has women rubbing or touching around them as accessible to them? And in a lot of ways, their rhetoric, however exploitive and sexist it is, which is a lot of intersectionality here, the message is very clear. If you get successful financially, rapper, athlete, you then get touched. What's the opposite of that? If you don't get money, if you aren't professional, if you aren't the stuff, if you aren't filling that framework or striving for that, you don't get get any touch. Mm -hmm. Oh, by the way, the only touch you can have is sexual touch. There's no place. I mean, to see you know baseball players hug each other over a tragedy and America loses their chunk. Oh, call it toxic masculinity, but understand there's an overall benefit. It's so much easier to kill, to incarcerate, to exploit black bodies if you don't connect to them. If you don't give them space to be held and touched and become human. Because being touched is a human experience. And so it's really important that white supremacy keeps that out of the, 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 the experience of the black body. Because it would, it would imply that we are human. And that's the implication. The white supremacy does not want America to get confused about. They don't want us to get confused and actually believe that black people are full human beings. So yes, white supremacy is 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 steeped in perpetuating and pushing forward the concept that black bodies do not deserve any touch. Unless it's brutal, hypersexualized, or again more animalistic.
That's important. Yeah. And it's very effective. And I want to disrupt that thinking. One of the things I'm curious about, Portia, especially around a surviving and creating space for being chronically untouched and recovering from that. There's a place where when someone is starved physically from food um, for weeks or even months, that there's a medical protocol to bring that person from being starved to proper nutrition and being healthy. And it's not walking to a hometown buffet and be like, eat right. as much as you want. I know you've eaten a couple of months, but you'll get, you'll get filled up real fast. Right. That could be a fatal move in the concept of being chronically untouched. I would like to think about ways in which we can bring people from a place of starvation and chronic experience to nutrition. Right. And being that your person has fought for touch and created spaces for touch, what would you imagine as a black woman and how you show up in this space and world, you could reach for or give thinking around things that white people can consider when tracking and, and noticing um, maybe they're in a position of bringing black bodies into a place of touch nutrition and there's no black hands around to support, but they, maybe they have a partner or a, a child they adopted or a mm-hmm. student in their yoga class that really is reaching to be bringing to nutrition. What should a white person be tracking as they're trying to consider bringing a, a black body into uh, uh, a more touch space? And they're suffering from being chronically untouched. Hmm. You know, I, I really appreciate this question um, because I think that's something that's not often thought about. And I want to, I want to answer this question by kind of going on, on a storyline, and that is that I remember when I was younger and being in spaces where my my mother and father being separated at one point and having challenges around their divorce and separation and things of that sort. I remember when I started to feel like touch was weaponized Mm. and that was when, uh, that was when my mom would only hug me to spite my dad. Mm. Like when my dad would come to pick us up and take us to school, she would turn to me and say, goodbye, I love you. And she'd give me a hug and a kiss. And other than that, I wouldn't get touched. Other than that, I wouldn't be touched. Other than that, I, wouldn't, I definitely wouldn't get kisses. Um, and I remember that it was in that moment when I started to feel like I didn't want to be touched because touch was being weaponized against my father. Mm. And I was a child and I felt I was 16 and I didn't know how to deal with this because I didn't want to turn to my mother and tell her that I don't appreciate you using me as a way of getting back at dad. But at the same time, I need your touch. Like I need your touch and, and I want to feel connected to you. But if this is the way in which I get to feel connected and touched, I don't want it. And so when we think about bringing people who when you, when you take that little girl 
and she's growing up and and she's still feeling this 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 hole of not being held of not being kissed of not being touched by her mother and her father and then all of a sudden you want to come and instantly you want you want to touch them you want to be close you want to do these things you have to i think for it's important for white individuals in this work to understand that that can be more detrimental than helpful if you don't take the time to understand the story to understand the trauma to truly develop a relationship that's so that's first and foremost that comes up for me is you have to have a relationship and have have went deep in that person's life in a real way to understand what feels good and what doesn't feel Mm. good and once you know that you now have a sense of navigation not just in a subliminal, not just thinking in your head, who, mm, what will Portia want, but also understanding that because you have that relationship, because you have that dynamic, it's created a space for you as a white person have an opportunity to sit down with me and say, Portia, you've shared this about your life. You've shared this, and I know that this can be painful for you. At this point in your life, what has your healing journey looked like? Yeah. You know, yeah. have you been able to heal through this, or is this something that's still painful? You know? And and what is the best way to reach for you, Portia? Mm. What is the best way for me to be close to you? And I think that oftentimes we we forget that that little child is very much so still in me. Mm-hmm. That that pain is still there. And if you're just navigating off of looking at me today, you're not taking the time to consider either the journey of healing that I've been on or the the journey of trying to constantly deal with this trauma. That's still there. This this also feels really familiar with the Tantra community, which is a little bit that we've talked about and, and communicate with people around Tantra that that I think when we think about these communities that struggle with having African heritage folks among them that mm-hmm. touch is a part of their work. Um, right. It's shocking how many times people don't take the time to build relationships that are based on questions that slow down their white material enough so they can actually hold and hear black experiences to know when and how to bring them out of a place of chronically undertouched spaces or to navigate that trauma of them surviving and coming out of being chronically undertouched. And I think that's something that feels really, really, really important in what you said. It's not just about like, oh, I'm going to touch you slowly. It's about who are you and what is your triggers and how can I track that mm-hmm. in a way that I understand where I fit as a white person into your particular trauma story. And, you know, I, I, I really appreciate you saying that, Aaron. And then the other piece that comes up for me is understanding that you don't just get to touch me one time. Yeah. This isn't just a, oh, I held a black woman's hand, I'm out. Yeah. Oh, I, I, I dealt with her pain for a couple of days, I'm, I'm out. out. Yes. You know? It's 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 also this 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 long term journey of Portia. Just as much as I am dedicated to a relationship with you, I understand that your pain is a part of that. I understand yeah. that you're chronically being undertouched is a part of that. Yeah. And as much as holistic resistance talks about that we are building lifelong relationships, that is a part of it. Yeah. You you don't just get to come in. And check me off your list because mm-hmm. you held my hand for five minutes and yeah. saw some tears. Yeah. Now you're there for a black woman. That's not yeah. how it works. Yeah. Uh, that's huge. I want to pause our, our podcast here and just let our listeners know this is a conversation going to continue on. But one thing I want to mention is that this tour is about 
in real time answering these kinds of questions, really unpacking this kind this kinds of these kinds of topics and not just unpacking them verbally, but in physical action. And I feel like there's a place where if you could slow down and think of a, a fundamental brick that is on the foundation of white supremacy having effective and negative impact and causing tons of carnage in the black community, touch is there. Yeah. And the chronic under touched is the is the carnage and results of a country that's white controlled and celebrates non connection and has built our houses, our stores, our our places of worship, our places of consumption to support lack of human connection in community. Um, and in that, we want to make sure that we name that, we bring this into the light in the way I talked about earlier, mm -hmm. and that this tour has a, a kind of working title of like unpacking the chronically undertouched black bodies and how white supremacy impacts it. You know, like that's what we're reaching for. That's what we're just dis dis trying to dismantle. And there is a podcast that I'm working on right now um, that is exclusively interviewing and unpacking just the chronically undertouched touched trauma story we touched on it today a little bit but there's so much more to that topic and material that i would like to unpack and interview people around and bring stories into uh the podcast and so i just want to really highlight that as we wrap up this particular episode but know this is coming uh in droves in the near future and i think also seeing the another concept that's going to be bring coming up within the tour is the intersectionality in which touch is weaponized against black men and versus black women. This yeah. idea of black men are these predators and are always touching in a, in an unhealthy way versus black women. We don't need it. Yeah. We, we just are obsolete. There's mm -hmm. no need for it, you know? So that's a continued Huge. conversation. And we've been talking about queer or trans or that material. Yeah. But that's, able... this, this is, we just, again, there's another episode that we got to get as never episode series and then go into the chronically untouched yeah. and really unpacking the magnitude in which white supremacy has been very quietly, but yet publicly effective in holding divisions in place. Yep. All right. Until next time, much love. See you on tour. Good morning. Welcome to a special edition of Holistic Resistance Radio. This is Aaron Johnson. Um, just wake up this morning. I'm doing this, like this audio diary section that um, it'll, it's a show, but it's also opportunity for me to just talk to you all, to keep you all abreast of what's happening in real time very quickly and to be able to be in a place of rawness, realness, and for you all to be able to reach for me uh, as well. I would love to hear from you all sending me voice messages via Facebook Messenger or here on Anchor um, are all appropriate. <clears throat> uh, it's morning time, so this is like the first uh, the first time I talk in a day. So my voice is a little deep, it's a little dry. Um, drinking some water, getting woke up still. But one of the things that's really critical is that I want to talk directly to you all. Uh, you don't want to wait too long for an edit for a podcast. This podcast is Holistic Resistance Raw, and we stay raw and dusty in Holistic Resistance, and um, we'll do a lot more of these episodes, and we'll be a lot quicker about it, because I like to go directly to uh, the people, uh, to you. It means a lot to me. One of the things that has been un unpacking, unfolding in my life right now that feels really important is 
a phrase that I coined maybe a couple years ago and been using in uh, coaching and supporting and deep mentorship and realized it had huge implications, much bigger than just my deep mentorship program as I started to talk to more people about it. And it's the idea of being chronically undertouched. Um, there are many ways in which um, African heritage folks are oppressed. There are many ways in which we acknowledge that in holistic resistance, that we are oppressed holistically, that every part of our lives are impacted by white supremacy, and we want to resist accordingly. Now, there's a piece that is in that that I feel is really important, one of the fundamental bricks of how we are hurt as a culture, but specifically African heritage folks are hurt in a very... Um, facetious way, a very effective way um, when it comes to being chronically undertouched. And now what does that mean? How do you qualify to being chronically undertouched? Um, you know, there's there's a lot of ways to describe it, but the way that I have been discovering it has been uh, pretty extreme. I talked to a lot of young men that have not been held for more than three minutes thoughtfully held for more than three minutes in the last year. Um, and these are as important as a lot of times these young men say that have been properly or mindfully held, hugged for more than three minutes, cuddled, um, massaged um, for more than three minutes in a mindful way in like 10 years. So when I talk about chronic, it's a spectrum. Some people haven't been held in the last month and that's causing some mental illness, some challenges, but some folks it's been 10 years and they've not realized it. Some people have been able to to supplement it <clears throat> with uh, 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 their job. Their job, if they're a body worker or something that can touch other human beings and supplement it. But they're giving touch oftentimes. I've seen people with animals, cats, dogs, and, and, and other animals help them contradict or disrupt this pain. But what I've seen is when I work with young men, is how much they struggle. These young men struggle, excuse me, struggle with relationships, struggle with anger, struggle with mental health almost across the board of, of connecting deeply because they are undertouched. And the reason it's important is that when you think about a person, a human being that has been starving, trapped out in, uh, in, in the wilderness and they're you know, living off of bugs or whatever, or they're in, in a particular, you know, unrest in a government and they've been starved well we, we have a, a medical protocol to help bring them into health to slowly bring them back into health to bring them back into a place of well-being and when I look at being chronic, chronically undertouched that is a place where I feel like we could do the same thing that we could really take the time to have a protocol it's a lot more nuanced sometimes because people have a variety of ways they can come back. Um, but I was, was examining my own healing in surviving 10 years, 15 years, I would say almost 20 years of being chronically undertouched. Um, that shining some light on how we can have better protocols, better systems. Uh, much more effective ways to bringing uh, everybody that suffers, but specifically I'm going to talk about black men because when you look at the spectrum of people that are undertouched, black men in the United States specifically are at the top of that list. Um, 
of being chronically undertouched. Black women are right there with them. But we find that after that, we see um, individuals have access to touch, access to connection, because it's, it's something important to acknowledge. First of all, human touch, even um, not mindful human touch can be uh, useful, can be a supplement. Um, it could also cause harm. But what I find with young black men is that one of the narratives that black men are constantly trying to navigate and survive is that we are predators first. And that we are nothing else beyond our intentions are predatorial first. And there's movies to back that up. There's there's media to back that up. There's uh, a, a law and, 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 and you know police force to back that up to try and keep that perpetuation of black men are predators first. And the reason that's very scary is that when you take a young uh, black man and you don't touch him, you don't properly give him the emotional nutrition that he needs to survive, and then you put him in a container where he is trying to then be perceived as a predator first, you can see very quickly how many black men are dying too early or violating people's trust are emotionally not equipped to maintain mental health uh, because they have not been touched in a way that helps them feel grounded, that reminds them that they're good, that disrupts their isolation, that disrupts their depression. And that piece right there is where Holistic Resistance wants to reach. We're actually going to go on tour, and, and our tour in January is the uh, Chronically Undertouched Tour. Um, as much as we won't be touching a ton of people all the time, we're going to do specific talks in explaining the value, explaining the the intensity, explaining the, the, the criticalness of being chronically undertouched and that we can disrupt this collectively. This is a community activity. This is a, a culture that needs a change that is shocking. I, I can't imagine. You think of the, the, the federal and state prison and private uh, uh, prison system there's this commonplace where when you are uh, acting up, when you are fighting, causing violence, whatever the, the prison system might call as a, a needy punishment, one of the first things you happens is you get isolated. And there, there what's very sick about it, you know, is that isolation is such an effective way of destroying the human mind and and abusing the human mind and it's such a common practice some men have been in solitary confinement for years now mind you they were crying in touch before they even went to prison probably one of the reasons why they went to prison in the first place oftentimes is because of some, uh, uh, the culture they're living in and being crying and untouched um and so when we look at the dynamic of touch and isolation those one of the things that, 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 that's not talked about enough, in my opinion, is that they talk about how many African heritage folks are locked up. It's, it's stunning. Uh, the first time I visited a, a federal prison, I was very nervous, and I get to the main courtyard. We were actually coming in as a singing group, and I was so nervous going into federal prison for a lot of reasons. Um, when I get inside, I was shocked. It felt so familiar there's so many 
cousins or, 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 or people like they're part of my family. They weren't, but they looked, they could have been. They looked familiar. It felt at home and in that very disturbing place of realizing how many African heritage folks that I could identify with were locked up, broke my heart. It really did. We have a lot of federal prisons near us here in the high desert in Southern California. And, and in that landscape of recognizing that those men in federal prison, state prison, and private prisons are isolated even more and even have more mental illness. And then they're, when they are released, whatever that rare occasion happens, but they are released back into the black community, they carry that deep distress pattern of being chronically undertouched. There's no protocol of you've been in prison for five years, you've been in prison for whatever, you've been in solitary confinement, and they come back into their neighborhoods that are underfunded, under-therapied, under-tracked in that way, and they're, re- they're, they're released without a protocol of helping them emotionally ground back into the federal system. And one of the systems that's important about that is that they talk about housing, they talk about jobs and employment, it's huge, but don't talk about the key part of touch. And if you've been locked up for 10 years, mindful touch is really hard to get. And for me, that's a part of this conversation that the black community is, is full of black men that are that are functioning as husbands, wives, sons, um, that have not been touched, that don't have access to touch, and that they are manipulating, tracking, reaching, in a lot of ways, screaming for connection and touch. And that piece feels like something I want to shine some light on. There needs to be touch facilities like they are Starbucks on the corner. We need less caffeine and more touch. Um, I know we can't do that tomorrow, but I think that that's something I want to reach for. I want to reach for making touch and protocols for bringing folks out of chronically touched uh, uh, pain stories into access to touch, access to human connection. And and this is what's important too, is that one of the protocols I want to talk about right now, this is going to be a series, but one of the protocols I want to talk about right now is that the chronically undertouched they need a lifetime of touch. This is not like six months and they're back to health. Six months can go a long ways in getting them grounded, but it's really about them being able to develop a culture around them of well-connected people that know and value and take the time to create touch space. Um, one of the things in holistic resistance we do here in deep mentorship is that especially when deep tragedy hits that we try and ground in with human touch because one of the protocols of bringing people out of uh, the current touch space is building relationships asking questions tracking where they are letting them know that they are seen they are respected and that they we love them enough to give them the, the boundaries and the tool and the skillfulness to know how to touch to know what kind of touch to ask for. I mean, for a black man to ask for platonic, platonic touch takes a ton of work. For him to have the skillfulness, the, the, the container to say, hey, I am open to touching your body, to holding your pain, to tracking your story, that your life matters enough is a goal. And a lot of the homophobia, transphobia, um, and deep pain that we're navigating is complex, but part of it 
is that we're crocking a touch and the, and the queer community has been so good at saying hey we can we can reach for each other we can hold hands we can we can we can disrupt that part of her and it doesn't mean that trans folks and queer folks don't suffer as well from being crunked in a touch but they bring in the feminine they bring in the the complexity around gender and what we can and can't ask for and that has been one of the areas I would love to continue to rub against to allow us as social justice folks that are trying to dismantle racism and white supremacy and internalize racism and, and homophobia and transphobia and all these neutron dismantle. I think if we don't have a protocol, <clears throat> if we. I want to welcome you all back. We have Portia here. We're really excited to have a really powerful conversation today about deep mentorship is equals reparenting. Uh, yeah. Yeah. How are you doing today? Just a little check in. Yeah, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm feeling, in a lot of ways, I'm feeling well in my body, um, considering that I've just been dealing with sickness for the past couple of weeks, and I, uh, have, I was able to just like go outside and get some air and walk, so just appreciating. The more that I can feel my 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 lungs being able to breathe fully, so to be able to be here and be present around such an important topic, deep mentorship, goes with parenting, just feels like home to me. And hmm. yeah, yeah, I think this gives us some backstory because Holistic Resistance was born out of a mentorship program, mm-hmm. and a mentorship program was born out of me mentoring you right. around the age of like eleven or twelve. 13, 13 mm-hmm. um, that time frame. So in that context, in a lot of ways, the birthing of Holistic Resistance started with you being mentored by myself. Um, and I think that that's just, it just feels important in the journey of how important and critical and life-saving mentorship can be. Right. Um, one of the, the curiosity I have for you is what was it, what was it like on your end being mentored in a nutshell, like what was that like to start the journey of getting support in, in, a, in a pretty hard time in your life? Yeah, you know, just about any time I think about the de-mentorship program, Aaron, it's interesting because one of the thoughts that come to me is like, I, I had a hard time. I had a hard time with like receiving it and actually being trustworthy that this was a program that was gonna be for me, that was actually gonna hold me and see me because I had come from an environment where I oftentimes didn't feel seen um, or heard. And I was, you know, just navigating a lot. Um, Just the way that, you know, as we talk about the black carnage that was in my space. And so it's almost like, I I felt like the deep mentorship felt like vegetables to me. It was like, I don't want to eat it, but I know it's good for me because I had a lot of skepticism I had a lot of skepticism around like is this actually gonna be here for me and as I grew in the uh, deep mentorship program and by growing I mean opening my heart up and and being open and willing I, and this is after you know you put in time working with me reaching for me not giving up on me even in moments where it was hard for me to trust 
um, it, it's become very clear to me that the Dementorship Program is what saved my life. And I, I am very, very much so clear in that. One of the things I was sitting with for myself, Aaron, it's just like in relation to talking about you choosing to mentor me and be in a mentoring space. Um, I'm curious of like, what made you choose that lifestyle, you know? Because to be a mentor is a lifestyle and the way that we chose to be it, you know, because we saw a lot of, we saw a lot of blind spots in, in, in other mentoring programs where that it was like, okay, we only meet once a week or we only have a certain time frame. But I am clear that when we say for the deep mentorship program that we are reaching for a lifetime and here we are, you know, going, going on almost a decade and some change of, of reaching for each other. And I'm no longer really a mentee, but more of a, a more of a peer, more of we, we mentor each other, we support each other. But in that, I'm curious of what, why you chose mm. to be a deep mentor and, and what keeps you in that for yourself? Yeah, that's a good question. I, I think for me, when I look at the situation that I was in growing up, having dyslexia and struggling in school, uh, support was critical. Mm. Uh, if someone didn't reach out and give uh, encouragement, a reminder that um, I could be seen or held or thought deeply well of, um, there was a very, very ready, well-oiled machine that was the mass incarceration right, mm. of black men mm. that was waiting for me. And it doesn't take much for me to be there. And without the hands of Aunt Louise, Aunt Juanita, my mother, my father, my older brother, my older sister, um, hands that mentored in very different ways, but mentored me, right. I wouldn't have a chance to survive the, the the place called America. And right around the time when I started mentoring you, I made some promises. I made some promises to myself and to my community that if I had any kind of stability, anything to offer, I would hand out my hand to help someone else and not just take the the uh, blessing of being supported to mentor. And so I, I made that clear to myself and didn't know exactly when I would start, how it would start. Mm. Mm. And it started with you. And so for me, it's, it's part of my responsibility. I don't think I'd live with myself if I um, took all the, the labor of our community. Even though it had some limitations, it wasn't perfect. Mm -hmm. But if I took that, that labor, that investment of our community and my community and just took it and ran with it, I couldn't, I couldn't go to sleep at night. I couldn't live with who I am. I couldn't live with the examples that were given before me. And that still feels true to my heart today. So for me, um, I entered in because I had to. It was a part of, I could, I, if I wanted to breathe and, and uh, feel fully human, I had to reach my hands out to my peoples. And so that's part of who I am. So I, I, that's what bring me into the work. 
Um, I, I'm honored by all those that have saw me as a young child, angry young child, um, and did not give up on my heart, did not give up on my potential, and still have it. Still invested there. Their words and prayers are still in the air around me. Mm. <sighs> Great question. Thank you. Thank you. One of the things I'm I'm curious about because now you're mentoring, right? So, mm-hmm. um, it's a big responsibility. It's a, a, a massive amount of labor, and now we're in the COVID, so it gets more complicated. But yeah. I'll be curious of how your journey has been for the last, say, five years of the deep mentorship program that you've been developing for yourself. Yes. What does it feel now to be in the in the, in the the kind of driver's seat of reaching for hearts and minds of folks that may be deeply hurt? I think it's, I think, I think it's clear to me that that's what I'm supposed to be doing. Mm. I, I think I have no, I have no doubts or, or qualms about like, am I supposed to be doing this? Or am I supposed to be doing something else? I and I and I feel like when I slow down my life experience, that it became very clear as to why I was mentored. You know, I felt like there were many steps that led up to me saying, "I want to." As it goes back to what you named around, like seeing the labor, seeing the labor, and seeing what was invested in me, and um, you know, understanding that a lot of these young African heritage folks that I'm mentoring and that I'm with, you know, they need someone to keep reminding them that life is worth fighting for, that there, there there's a lot of places in their life in which they could easily, um, they could easily be in a space in which they're wondering, hey, when, when does my life matter enough that there's a space on this world where I can feel seen, where I can feel connected, where I can feel heard? And I literally try to build that, you know, I try to build this, this, this safety space, the space in which I'm able to guide them. And so in a lot of ways, what this experience has been like for me is it's been a, it's been a nonlinear learning of what it means to be a mentor. It's one thing to be a mentee, but it's a whole nother space when you say, yeah, I'm going to take the responsibility of helping you continue to shape and grow and, and 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 undo the hurts that were given to you and then looking at those trauma stories and being patient with yourself and loving yourself through that process. So I think that there's definitely been uh, more so than anything is, a, and even in the pain, you know, the reality is, is that there's a deep joy. There's a deep, deep joy in my heart to know that these are folks who are saying, hey, Portia, I feel like there's something that you can offer me and that I can be able to gain that's not just for me, but for the next generation. Because we realize that it's clear to me that people are being impacted because I was mentored by you, right? It's clear that you people are being impacted uh, or you're, you're impacting people because you were mentored, because you were supported, right? So it's become really clear to me that there's a domino effect and that one domino is not knocking over just by itself but someone else is supporting, someone else is, is holding, you know? And so I'm clear that I'm a part of that domino effect and that I'm not the end result, but I'm a part of the of the process. And so I wanna make sure that I do that part. And I think some of the most challenging parts is watching them learn how to swim, right? And saying, hey, 
I remember when I struggled there and thinking back like, oh, this is this is what mentorship felt like me. But wait, you're a whole nother human being. You have your own set of stories. You have your own set of trauma stories. Okay, how do I tailor what my how do I tailor my thinking and my customization of supporting you in the ways that I feel like would be most beneficial and effective to you? And and really when it's all said and done. I, I feel like there's been a mixture of that. Mm. There's been challenge, there's been pain, there's been joy. But most importantly is there's a level of resiliency that, that keeps us continuing to reach for each other's hearts and minds. And to me, that is the root of what I learned through working with you, honestly, Aaron, is that it's really about what is it like to just keep trying? Mm-hmm. Even if you're stumbling, even if it's not always exactly the way it should be, there's a love that is that is that is unwavering that will be there, and to know that is one of the biggest things that I that I gained that I try to give to them. It's like it's okay. That's that's I have a I have a you know rap I was working on and and a phrase came up that was like it's it's okay. It's the way that we grow. It's the way that we mold, right? And I heard that phrase and I was just like yeah. It's okay to make mistakes. It's the way that we grow. It's the way that we mold. And I think a lot of these young folks, they don't get a lot of chances. And so there's that extra tension around making mistakes. Yeah. It's huge. Thank you for sharing that. Yeah. You know, speaking of this conversation of what it means to, like, be with these young folks and give them space to grow and all these things, some would say sounds like you're kind of parenting you know (laughs) sounds like you're kind of in the space of like supporting and and parenting or reparenting these folks and i'm curious if you would speak a little bit about that because one thing that's true to me and my story is that i saw a lot of places that i had to be retaught i had to learn how to rethink and, and and reassess the way i looked at the world and how i looked at myself and all these things and a lot of that was done through questions i know it was one of your biggest conversations with me but i'm curious if you would speak a little bit more to what not just the deep mentorship as a whole but specifically the element of reparenting revisioning uh with young african heritage folks and and even starting with myself of what that experience has been like for you yeah, I think reparenting was born when I, I remember sitting down with a mother, a family actually, a mother and a father, and I was taking in one of their children into my mentorship program. They had five children total. And I saw very clearly that even though they had five children and loved them so deeply, that they were ill-equipped for what it took to actually help their children survive. And this has nothing to do with their intelligence or their desire. They had all the heart, but it was just the perfect storm of the trauma story that the children were holding perfectly lined up with the soft spots or the hurt spots for their parents. And so it was a constant riff happening to the point that the trauma was so deep, they couldn't live in the same room with each other. They couldn't be in the same house hardly together. Just, and this, this child was getting close to adulthood um, and they were in a large city like Los Angeles. So. In that, in that container, I, I realized that if we didn't do something, if this didn't work, there was no, there's no backup here. Mm-hmm. And one of the first things I do with reparenting or deep mentorship is I ask myself, can I see them? Mm-hmm. Can I see them? Mm-hmm. And 
And I asked myself the question, not just once, but like a hundred times throughout the, the early process. And, and it continued on, but it's loud. That question is really loud the first, but can I see them? And I say that not because reparenting is hard because we're not, you know, we're not dealing with uh, having therapists and doctors and mm. medication and mm. we got Jesus mm. and a shelter, mm-hmm. you know? And, and I say that not kiddingly. Like, it's not just that we're against therapists or we're against doctors, it's that the trauma story this young black folks sitting with is, I don't trust the doctor. Yep. I don't trust the therapist. And, and I'm gonna tell you something, finding a therapist where we live that can actually even hold black stories at all, right. it's Look, so hard, it's just not there. It's just not available. Rude, yeah. And I'm not even talking about the other trauma that black folks carry yeah. around there. So we don't have therapy. And, and by if time, you find that therapist now, you gotta go help your mentee be okay with exactly. moving towards exactly. that. Exactly. We have to work with them on our end so they actually feel safe enough and have exactly. the capacity to go in there exactly. and be with the therapist and actually really benefit from that experience. So that usually comes on us first. Right. So we're not anti having a professional on site, but that's not available. Right. Right. The trauma story makes that available. That's a, a white oppressive system made it very clear that they're not trying to get mental health support for, for black children that mm. we're getting. So I knew that as a reparenter, my goal was to be a therapist. My goal was to be uh, a father. My goal was to be a mother. My goal was to be a friend at times. My goal was to be um, a disciplinary to help them get straighten things up and, and, and call them into support. My goal was to reconnect them to the earth and also try and see them while I'm doing all of that. Right. Can you speak a little bit to that? Because I think I think everything you said, folks are like, yeah, therapist, a parent, a, a mother, a father, like, yeah, yeah, yeah. But you said connect to the earth. Can you speak a little bit more about that? I think that it, w- it would be really well, powerful well, to go into that. Well, we find that when I look at can I see you, one of my things I've seen to them is where are you hurting? Mm. Where are you hurting? The, oftentimes, the, the, the hurt so, oftentimes when I get young folks, they say, this kid's a liar. <laughs> this, is, this is a liar. This is a thief. Or this kid's a fighter. He's a fighter. Yeah, so they literally don't even call them by their name. They just kind of name them by the last offense mm. that they did. The, the adult that usually hand them off is you're that thing you did. You're a murderer, whatever, you know, whatever that is. You're a thief. Mm-hmm. You're a rapist. We define these horrific things by you're not even a person anymore. You were never an infant. You were never a human. You are now a murderer. And I understand that murder is a horrible thing, but none of that. I've never met a murderer that wasn't a baby first. Mm. Right? So for me... It, it, there's a there's a level of connectedness yeah. to the earth that really is about connecting them back to themselves. Right. And I oftentimes grab a clay ball at some point right. in a mentorship program, and I say, when you die, you don't turn into your cell phone. You turn to this, mm-hmm. right? Now I don't try to mock the cell phone. The someone was amazing, but there's a way in which sometimes for someone to ground themselves, to try and even start to self-heal, to self-soothe in a really real way, it's good to remember where you are. Not like, oh, I'm in America. That's useful to know at some point. But where are you? You're on the earth. Like, let's go out and touch it. Let's go be with it. And I think that came to me, living in the earth though, because I saw that it was no longer the separate thing. That the earth was the thing that nourished us, that so the food and the, the everything that we, the wood that we use to build our houses came and comes from the, the earth. earth. But right. when you're in a large city, Los Angeles, you're somewhere in a large city, even a large city, right. you can go a long time and never touch it. Right. 
not not knowingly it's a cement it's plastic it's a car more cement more plastic more it's all very much been touched by man and so that has a, a wearing impact on your nervous system. And so when we bring mentees into our mentorship program, just ones that are living with us, yep. is we even the ones that aren't, but the ones that are definitely with us, we want to take them outside at Earthfield. Right. We'll go out and see some Muscovy ducks or some, some chickens and some eggs, and yep. you raise a, a baby chick from a baby chick all to adulthood, and then you, get, and you butcher it, and, and the, the, the cycle of life and death. And understand you don't just go to the store and like, I some nuggets to know that those nuggets <laughs> lived inside of a human, mm-hmm. not a human being, lived inside of a chicken mm-hmm. at some point yeah. and was harvested by a human being and that was labored over. So when you do that thing yourself, you're like, I'm, I'm not going to throw this food away. Yeah. You know, so this, this is all part of being grounded to the earth. So this yeah. is kind of regrounding, help them settle into yeah. being a human being. And I can, I can speak a little bit to that experience too. And that's why I really appreciate you slowing that piece down because I can think back to when um, when you very first were building your earth home and I was really intrigued by it and I was just like, wow, like what is this? And, and I remember, you know, the more I got into the space, the more I started to realize like, wow, this is like empowering. It's not, and I, and I thought about this, I was like it's not just a touch piece, but it's also like a mentality piece that when you have, you know, when you're, when you're a young black person and coming from poverty and not having a lot, not knowing what, what, what vision looks like, what it looks like to build your own, what it looks to create, to, to own, right? And there's this place in which you can really just, there's a, I remember being, you know, clear that I wanted to create my own shelter after, after seeing the earth dome. And I never, I never thought about, I never thought about that previously. And obviously like that's a longer story, but one of the significant pieces I'm thinking about is I remember touching the earth and there was a way that I felt also embodied mm. in ways that I never felt before. Mm. And I remember coming to you and be like, Aaron, I'm, I'm like, I'm experiencing something. Like I'm experiencing tears. I'm experiencing feelings of in ways that I don't, I don't feel when I'm watching TV in ways that I don't feel when I'm, when I'm, when I'm playing a video game or, 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 or something that doesn't require me to slow down and notice the nature of my feet and above my head, mm. you know? And that that to me just feels very nourishing and i think to our chronically undertouched support group and like how we are working with these young black men to to actually i remember just them starting out and, and understanding what it meant to be close to each other mm. you know just like yeah we as black men we can we can yeah. hold each other's hands and we can look each other in the eyes and we can fill each other's heart and if you have some tears that is welcomed as well and guess what you're a whole man. You're you're still a whole man, right? And I and I could see the places in which they're moving through that. And if and, and then you get a little clay ball and you have that next to them, right? And they're like, wow, like this feels hard. This feels uncomfortable. This, but at the same time, this is good for me, right? So I think there's so much there that I just really really appreciate and thinking about. Oh, it's huge. Yeah, I think. I think one of the things I know we're gonna, we're gonna stop the podcast here soon, but I just want to say that you're right. I think when it comes to taking on the touching of the earth and and relearning how to touch each other yeah. in healthy platonic ways yeah. is such a interruption of so many trauma stories that come into come to our our communities. And I think for me, when we track someone that is suffering from mental illness, I can guarantee you they're crying on a touch on some level. Mm. 
they're mm. somewhere on the spectrum. Mm. And I can almost guarantee you they don't have enough time with therapy as a kid as well. Yeah. And so we start learning that yes, therapy is good. Yes, sometimes yeah. you need medication. Yes, these are things important. But I'm shocked every time how we can get ahead of the trauma. Yeah. By allowing young folks to be with each other. Yeah. To get their touch needs met in a very skillful and thoughtful and platonic way. And then make a part of their touch plan, which is another podcast. Mm-hmm. Part of their t- touch plan mm-hmm. is the earth. Exactly. It's a part of it. The the earth is like, in, in a lot of ways, from what I've seen and I've witnessed, is like the earth is the gateway to an embodied experience for yes. a lot of these folks. Yes, it's like yes. wow, this is. So I can I can I can I can feel this on my skin. I can notice this. I remember the first time we just had them put clay on mm-hmm. their hands mm-hmm. and just feel it. Yeah, and the ways that they're like kind of feels you know like they're yeah, just yeah. they were just like yeah. in it and so there's so much there that i feel is just really powerful about that so i'm really excited about deepening more into that with you thank you thank you all for listening um to our uh, podcast around deep mentorship and reparenting such an important part of holistic resistance it's kind of a, a unsung part it's not something we we, we talk too much about yeah. but we're talking more about it now because it's to me more important now than ever for us to have more reparenters in the world um, more people holding up community and building it for these marathon journeys because mentorship is a lifelong program we don't have people join our program and they go oh you're you're 25 and they graduate people they graduate when they are able to stand on their own two feet they don't so there's no graduation but there's a part of our Mm -hmm. lifelong commitment this Mm -hmm. is like parenting we don't ever um, as long as we're living in our half of our right minds, we, we reach for these young folks. And exactly. unless they say, I would like to leave your program, and then they can leave it at any point. But as long as they're desiring help and we can safely give it, we do that. And that's the journey that we're on. This is not a, oh, you're 18 now. And usually 18 is when they most likely get locked up. Mm-hmm. So we want to make sure that our program mm-hmm. through 18 by a long shot. So thank you, Fortune, for being here with us. Thank you for yeah. being that first mentee for myself. Yeah. And being a gateway for so many to come after you. Yeah. Oh, it's such an honor, Aaron. It's such an honor to be able to to be on this uh, podcast and and to be able to do do this work. Uh, I think it's quite clear to me that deep mentorship program, and I say this often, is one of the most undervalued um, work. Um, and I, I just think it's so powerful to think about the ways that reparenting is in the is at the roots of that. Yeah. And I just feel really really excited about um all the listeners and and all you all who are listening to this podcast just um yeah deep gratitude for taking the time to be with us today and and Aaron just you know love as usual because the truth is deep mentorship saved my life and I I will always always be grateful because of that thank you Portia I will also say to all the parents out there and uh, folks that may be taking our parenting program either now or in the future, that this is something we're gonna go in deep in depth about, about what we had to navigate, how we've navigated, and how we've gotten ahead of the yeah. trauma, and how we wanna collaborate yeah. with your hearts and minds as you are taking on one of the most important jobs on the planet, and that is caring for other human beings to grow them into the world, uh, to survive a very complex world. If you're parenting now in 2020 in, in a very uh, intense pandemic and shelter in place, and mm-hmm. education to food supplies are all being questioned, yeah. um, my heart is with you. Absolutely. We are here with you. And we were looking forward to building a network of support so you don't do this alone. Much love. We'll talk soon. Much love. All right. Welcome. I want to welcome all the parents, all the 
individuals that took it on time to take on uh, the six-week intensive. Uh, we're going to be sending out a micro-parent positionality profile. And the reason called call it micro because it's a select handful of questions that I feel could do, take some time to explain. And for those that haven't taken the workshop, maybe just dropped into the podcast for the first time and are interested in um, hearing more about the uh, parenting uh, program around teaching children around social justice work and how to do that as a parent at a variety of stages. And a lot of the first class is about just introducing you to the concept of asking better questions, noticing your own blind spots. And we'll, as we go deeper into these programs, we'll get much more thorough and just understanding where you fit. And a word we'll use is positionality a lot. And this micro personality is a great place for us to start. Um, so with that, I'm going to get into it. Um, welcome. And uh, I really want to just start with a couple of key things that oftentimes can be forgotten in this work. And that is that this is our best thinking as of right now. We're going to think of more topics and, and more uh, information as time goes on. Uh, this is 2020. We've done, you know, five years of thinking. And I, I'm sure in 10 years of thinking, we'll look back and go, snap, we've came a long way. So I just want to give space that this is the time we're in. And we're always trying to improve, always trying to deepen. And I felt like from, from 10 years ago, we've come a long ways, a long, long way. So I just want to appreciate the journey that we're on. So the parenting micro positionality questions, you'll receive these questions in a Google Doc or email from the facilitator. But I just want to give it take a little bit of a moment to explain some of the questions and how we could think about them. And I want to clearly state this is an invitation. This is not a, this is the way it has to be. So um, question number one, we don't have to go in this order, but in the context of this particular um, series, this is how it's set up here. When were you first introduced to racism? This is to you, the parent. So you're going back to your childhood, you're going back to early parts of your life and just recognizing when did you start becoming aware of racism? Maybe it was a couple of years ago, maybe it was when you were very young, but just trying to examine your life and say, huh, when did I get introduced and what was that like? Was it my parent? Was it my school? Was it media? Was it all the above? And, and how can you remember yourself receiving that information about you being different or black people being inferior or whatever the you know people of color around you are? Um, we talk a lot about black folks because I'm African heritage and the folks that we're um, helping notice here in this conversation is race, um, is, is African heritage. So I just want to name that these questions are uh, coming from my lane. But if you have other indigenous and, and BIPOC folks that are in your community, it's, this definitely applies with them as well. Um, number two, what are ways that you dominate black bodies for your safety and for your family's safety? This question probably requires the most explaining only because I could imagine when I say the word dominate, we might get really like um, polarized or fix it on the word dominate. But it's an important word, but I want to explain it a little bit more here. There are so many ways to dominate Black people in America and how we have oftentimes been dominated. And some of it's not even, it's not even recognized as domination. But I, I remember I was teaching a, another workshop, but we were talking to a person and I said, what is, um, what are ways that you uh, want to dominate Black bodies for your own safety? And they're like, I'm a small, petite person. I don't have a lot of strength to dominate. And they slowed it down and they go, oh, snap. Oh, I see I, I dominate. There was an expectation that they were more intelligent than African heritage folks, no matter who they were. There was this clear belief that they were more intelligent, that they had more power, right? 
So this is a good example that when we say dominate, we're not just talking about physical strength. We're just not talking about economics. Those all can qualify. But there's subtle ways neighborhoods you move into can promote domination. Uh, states you may live in can promote domination. And you might feel safe in those environments because there's a dominant attitude towards black folks, that black folks are quote unquote in control if they're going to be in your neighborhood, um, that, that you have your personality is celebrated, not tracked as well, not monitored. So when you're not monitored, that really puts a, a domination um, privilege in your personality, depending on where you are. Um, I, I remember very dis distinctly, um, I was in a, a neighborhood teaching a social justice workshop, surprise, in the living room. And I packed myself a dinner, me and my co-facilitator, Portia, my cousin, and we're sitting in the car eating our dinner out in front of the house that we just taught a social justice workshop. And someone saw us and called the police. And the police came and knocked on our window, put the lights in our face and asked us what we were doing. We said we were finished up our dinner. He was pretty aggressive, but kind of like that dominant white police officer aggression, like um, something effective, like, are you done? You know, really, really dominant. It, the question wasn't like, oh, take your time and finish up your dinner. It was like, finish up your dinner and get on out of our neighborhood. But there is a positionality in that neighborhood of if you're a black person eating with the, 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 the lamp light on in your car so people can see your race, that most likely they will call the cops on you. So it was a pretty nice neighborhood. It was in Redlands, California. And I share that story not to bash Redlands. There's thousands of neighborhoods um, that this would happen in. But there's a way that when you live in that neighborhood, there's an assumption that if you're black, it's a high reason, it's a high chance you shouldn't be there. It's a high chance I can just make a phone call and an officer will, will escort you out of the neighborhood, not because you did anything wrong. I had all kind of rights to be there and I'd have to be escorted out or whatever. But I said, yes, sir. And I got on out of there. Um, and I say that because this is not a light. This is unfortunate. It's not the, the last time or the first time the cops have been called on me. But there's a way in which domination is in place that um, is surprising. We start to examine this topic and slow it down. How many times we feel as maybe you might feel as a white person that you can just, oh yeah, I could just call. I could just use my voice and control this entire situation. And that person based on their ethnicity, based on the economic, based on all that, they're, they're going to be at a disadvantage already. So I say that not lightly, but the domination question, I really want you all not to just kick it out of your system right away. Take some time with it. I'll move on to number three here. Number three is what is your ideal black person for your family? I know this is another unfair question. And I think your gut response, we've asked this question to about a couple hundred people now, is you want to kick it out of your system. You're like, oh my God, what kind of racist question is this? This question is really essential. What is the ideal black person or we can use African heritage person for your family? This is a really critical question. This is actually a, a sister question to what is your ideal black person? We added families because this is for the family workshop. But I find that if we ask the first you know, the, the, the sister of this question first and say, um, what is your personal ideal black person? You might be like, I don't have an ideal. I love all black people. I feel you appreciate the, 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 the energy here. But in America, we have an ideal black person. And oftentimes you have been conditioned through media, through a variety of, of platforms and environments you may live in that say this kind of black person you have attention for. This particular trauma story of African heritage folks you don't have attention for. And we see this acted out in a thousand different ways. So before you kick the question out, understand, examine. You don't have to. I think this question is best set up 
the setup of this question is best set up by what is your so this is white. This can work for black folks, but in this particular podcast and 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 part of this workshop, this is for white folks to hold. What is your ideal black person? Who do you feel safest with? And then you expand it to your family. That might change dramatically. You might feel safer, but then when you add your child and your husband or your wife or your partner, whoever it is, into the family, you get, well, how's your family feel? I, I don't know how many times I have uh, worked mostly with white women where they, they have this large spectrum of black people they can be close to. And then you add their husband to it, that, that thing is zeroed down to almost a much more narrow lens. But their partner cannot hold the same thing that their wife is holding or does it feel safe or feels threatened or just because they have a particular trauma story they haven't been tracking. And this is really dangerous too for white folks not to be aware of because, you know, there's an expansion, a whole topic on this particular question that can be examined. And one of them is if, if you are not aware of your family's ideal black person and, and you just focus on what you can hold and you invite somebody into your community, you invite someone into your job or whatever power dynamic you may have, and they come into your home, it's a possibility things can get really dangerous real fast, emotionally, physically, or all of the above. Uh, I had a friend in high school who's mixed heritage, but white passing, invited me to come to her house to do a photo shoot. Her husband was racist, racist as chump, like uh, scary racist. He was huge. And she was so excited about this family portrait that I was gifting out to the community back when I did photography, family portraits, that when I came, she didn't even track the fact that she, her husband was not only terrified, but threatened I mean, to come into his house and do the family portrait. Now it worked out. And another time I share the whole story of how it went, but it could have went a lot, a lot more dangerous for all of us if, if he didn't calm down towards the end of the photo shoot. But I say that because she did not track the ideal black person for her family. She didn't realize by asking a dark-skinned high school friend of hers to come into her home that her husband would feel so threatened. Because all she was thinking about was how wonderful her relationship was with me and how she trusted me. She didn't track her own husband's trauma story. I don't know how many times this happens with, with daughters and families that you know date a black guy and bring him home. I have no clue if their parents are going to freak out. It happens all the time. So this question I recommend you sit with. You sit with this question, white folks, because I can guarantee you if one white person really sits with this question, this can change the entire reality of their family, uh, their whole experience and take it on race and the journey of how they want to raise their child. Because oftentimes children outpace their parents and what they can hold as far as African heritage folks and, and race and racism. So don't get outpaced by your child. Let's get ahead of the trauma here. I'll pause there. There's a whole lot. That's probably a whole podcast series on ideal black person we can do at some point. But for this training program, it's going to just speak to that question of how you can maybe hold that. What is the ideal black person for your family? All right. Number four, how do you hear and hold black stories? This is so important. And I, I share this because I've gone to homes that have Black Lives Matters posted in front of their house and they have places where they've gone to marches. They've even given donations and all that's appreciated. But once you go inside into the living room, there's, there's no actual model inside the home uh, shown to the child. And I understand this is a lot easier said than done, hence why we have this program, this six-week intensive program of, of how to you know deal with race, talk about race, teach race to your child in a white-controlled space. But they don't even notice it. They don't even notice that their child doesn't even know how to hold black stories, has not had any kind of black time, no black 
stories that have been curated and, and kind of put in the propaganda of Hollywood. I'm not saying all Hollywood movies about black folks is bad, but you got to be careful, very careful about how you consume black folks in the Hollywood narrative. But there's no actual authentic holding. So how does your story, how does your family hold the stories, the news stories, the the carnage of, of Black Lives Matter is being put onto the internet right now. How does your family hold that? How does a five-year-old, 10-year-old, 15-year-old, how do they hold that? So these are big questions. So. So my, uh, my micro is getting a little low here, so we're going to pause the podcast here pretty quick. I'm trying to get in a couple more questions here, though. Um, the other question here is, how do you hold black stories? You got that one. Number five this is the last question of the micro, the micro personality profile. And that is, when do you, when were you introduced to shame in your family? And when do you think your child will be introduced to shame in their minds and bodies? And, and that question actually can be written a little differently. I actually might modify that now. I'm reading it out loud. Um, is... When were you, as a person, when you were growing up, when were you introduced to shame? Um, when you were growing up in your personal family? And then when do you think shame is going to be introduced to your child in their mind and their body? Because this is a building block of trauma that can be released in eight different ways, a thousand different ways, if your child is constantly being introduced to shame. Because when you're talking about dismantling racism in your family, and your social dynamics of growing up in a white controlled space. I don't know how many times shame has interrupted good work white folks are getting ready to do around race. Um, and it starts early. So I would first examine number five is when were you as a child, the parent, examine the parent first. When was the parent or you first introduced to shame in your mind and body? And when do you think shame will be introduced to your child? into their mind and body. What age, what circumstances, where are you most likely going to maybe use shame as a tool either accidentally or indirectly on your child? And how can that manifest over years into how your child may be able to show up for this work of social justice work? So that's our micro personality profile. I hope that you are able to answer it, stay with this podcast and use it as a tool just to know how our best thinking on this micro personality profile. And there's a list of questions that you all asked us at the top of the workshop. And once you answer these five questions, actually like six questions. Once you answer them, then I would love for you to go back to the questions you asked us. And based on your personality, are you able to say, hmm, one of the questions was, how do I talk to my child about police? Once you have answers to all this information, we can link the gap of, okay, I'm talking to my child about police and I have a lot of shame. I'm gonna make sure I disrupt the shame piece. If I'm gonna talk to my child about police, and, and we have an idea of our ideal black person can really have to be informed and say, oh, as a family, we can't hold these kind of black folks really well because as a family, as a parent, I'm, I'm afraid of this kind of black person. And so I, I will oftentimes be likely to be dangerous to a black person that shows up in this kind of personality or shows up in this kind of trauma story in, in near our family because I'm, I'm afraid of my family. I can understand there's ways that can make sense uh, to protect your family, but there's a way which you can really talk about, really articulate things deeper about the questions you are asking once you have filled out these five questions. All right, we'll talk more about this in our last class uh, of the intensive, but I really want to just give this podcast as a little helping tool to help you think the best um, that we can as we take on these big topics. Much love to you all, and I really look forward to seeing you all in the workshop. Peace.